Um, I, uh, I want to say I'm excited to be back. We, Martha and I were out of town last week, had a great uh, week away, but it's good to be back home. Appreciate Robbie preaching last week, and I'm sure you were encouraged and, and challenged by his message. I'm also excited to be beginning a new sermon series uh, this morning. Probably noticed when you walked into the foyer, uh, the announcement of a series that I'm just calling Chasing the Heart of God. And my plan is to spend some time in the Old Testament, looking at some individuals in the Old Testament and their relationship with God, and try to learn some things about our relationship with God. And I am beginning this series with, I said in first service, one of my favorite Old Testament characters, but he's my very favorite Old Testament character, uh, and that's David. Uh, David got pretty close to the heart of God. In fact, David was the one person the scripture says had the heart, a man after God's own heart. So we're actually going to take several weeks and look at some snapshots out of the life of David. And I hope that during this series you'll learn a little bit more about David, that you'll learn a little bit more about ourselves, and that we learn a whole lot more about God. But I'm going to open this series with what is undoubtedly the best known, most loved story concerning David. And that's David and Goliath. Even if you don't know anything else about David, even if you don't know anything else about the Bible for that matter, you know that once upon a time, there was a young man named David, and he killed a giant named Goliath. And you all know much more than that. You know just about every detail of that story. But we're going to jump into it anyway. I think there's still some things that we can learn and, and apply. First uh, Samuel chapter 17 is where we're going to be. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to go ahead and start reading right out of verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Succa in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You know this story. Verse 4, chapter 17, 1 Samuel. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. This is um, about 200 pounds of armor that Goliath wore. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, about 25 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So, here's a giant, nine and a half feet tall. But Goliath just wasn't a really tall man. He was a really tall warrior. Goliath was a, uh, had a tremendous amount of experience. He was a nine and a half foot killing machine. He was the pride and joy of the Philistine army. The Philistines would point to Goliath and say, that's our guy. That's our guy. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Saul was the king of Israel. Remember, Israel wanted a king, so a king would lead them into battle. Saul is their king. Goliath goes on, Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, 
you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So Goliath comes out day after day after day, week after week, issuing this same challenge. Send someone out to fight. To the death. Winner take all. And Israel looks to their giant. They look to Saul. Saul was their king. Not only was Saul their king, he was, he was their champion. You remember Saul was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. So it was sort of natural for Israel to look to, to Saul. How are you going to respond, Saul? What are you going to do? The Israelite army was placing their hope in Saul. And the Israelites are waiting for Saul to come out of his tent and do something about the Goliath situation. That's what the Israelites expected. And that's where, that's where their hope was. And I want to step sideways for just a minute and make an observation because I don't think we're really that different from the Israelite army. We place our hope in the things or the people that we trust. As individuals, we place our hope in, in who we trust. And when the people that we place our hope in, when they, when they let us down, it's not just disappointing. Sometimes it gets to a situation where there is contentious. Okay, if I trust someone and I put my hope in them and they, they violate that trust, sometimes there's some, you know, I, I'll end up despising that person. And you see this all the time in families. Now that's why so many people sort of resent their parents. Because children, no matter what their age is, we, we place our hope in our parents. That's who we trust. And then when our parents disappoint us, you know, ooh, that, that relationship gets kind of contentious. You know, you never place a lot of hope in the parents of your next door neighbor, right? The kid you played with next door, you didn't place a lot of hope in their parents. So they never disappointed you. And your parents could make you so mad. But you were always nice and polite and kind to the next door neighbor's parents. Which made your parents so mad. I know that's in you. Why can't you act that way when you're around me? You know, Why are you being so polite to these parents and you're not polite to your own parents? You know, As parents, we kind of get that, right? Maybe you have a son or daughter who sort of drives you crazy, but you see them around other people's parents. They're like the model child. And other parents bring them back after a day, you know, play and say, wow, he was just so sweet and so much fun. She was just so polite. And we just loved having them in our home. They're welcome any time. You're like, wait, what? Now who? You talking about, about my kid? Now why don't you act that way around your mom and me? But we know that's how it works. Because where we place our hope is where we place our trust. And that's who we look to. So Saul in the story, he's not acting much like a king. His credibility is slipping away day by day. And with each passing day and Saul taking no action, the Israelites are beginning to lose hope in Saul. They're losing hope in the one that they thought they could trust. Now, you remember, God never wanted Israel to have a king. God wanted Israel to look to him as their king because God knew whoever you put your hope in, that's who you're going to trust. 
And God very much wanted his people to trust him. If you go all the way back, long before the story we're talking about today, all the way back to the book of Genesis, God makes a very specific promise to a man by the name of Abraham. And God's promise is, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God had a very specific plan for Israel. God's plan was, I am going to bless you. I'm going to bless you as a nation. I'm going to bless you as a people. And when I bless you, all the other peoples and all the other nations are going to look to the Israelites and say, wow, who is this God? Who is this God that's blessing these people? Who is this God that's protecting these people? Who's defending these people? Who's causing these people to prosper? They're not going to look at you and say, wow, you got an amazing king. Who is your king? God's intention was for the people around to look at the Israelites and say, wow, you've got an amazing God. Who is your God? They would be forced to ask about this unique God that was protecting and, and blessing. And of course, God promises Abraham that through him, all peoples on earth will be blessed. The promise of another king, not some king, not not a king, but the king would be coming. But of course the Israelite people look around and they see all the other nations around them that have kings and they start sort of whining to God. We want a king too. All the cool nations have kings. We need to be like the cool nations. Give us a king. And they start complaining to a guy by the name of Samuel who is the last great judge. And Samuel is trying to dissuade them from demanding this king. But finally, God relents and God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they rejected me as their king. The plan had always been for God to be the king of his people. But The people demand a king, and God finally relents. Even though the people are warned, having a king is not going to work out like you think it's going to work out. Be careful what you ask for. A king is going to draft your men, your sons, into military service. He's going to take your daughters and make them servants. A king is going to tax you. A king is going to demand a portion of your fields, a portion of your cattle, a portion of your wealth. Having a king is not going to be such a great thing. And yet the people say, we want a king. We want a king to lead us into battle. Now, it's interesting that the the Israelites' demand for a king is what sets the stage for really the next several hundred years of Hebrew history. In fact, their demand to have a king is what sets the stage for the story of David. We wouldn't really know anything about David had they not demanded to have a king because David is Israel's second king. I think he was Israel's greatest king. In a long line of kings, some good, some bad, David was Israel's greatest king. And he wasn't the greatest king because he was such a good guy. And he wasn't the greatest king because he was just so talented. He was Israel's greatest king because there was something in him that was assured yet very reluctant. There's something in David that was very confident yet still very humble. Unlike other kings, David loved the law. He loved the law. Other kings didn't love the law. 
Other kings thought they were the law. Other kings thought, if I want to do something that's against the law, I'm changing the law because I'm the king. David loved the law, even when the law condemned him. David allowed himself to be broken, to be molded by the law. In his writings, in the Psalms, we read over and over again, David's love for the law. He allowed himself to be broken by the law. And David is convinced God's law is the only law that matters. David's convinced God's law trumps every other law. And that conviction is going to give him a tremendous amount of clarity and a tremendous amount of direction, really through the rest of his life. Through through a, a pretty flawed life and a pretty imperfect reign, David's never confused about who the real king of Israel is. He's never confused about that. He's never confused about his small part in the grand scheme of things. In spite of his popularity, in spite of all his successes, in spite of his abilities, he's never confused about who Israel's real king is. You know, I think sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we we, we find ourselves being successful in different ways, and suddenly it seems like we're taking God's place on our throne, right? Oh, maybe we, we experience some success in business, oh, a big promotion or financial success, and you know some things are happening that just wow, this is great. Or, or maybe we have some parenting success or, or relationship successes, and, and pretty soon we're not looking to God anymore. We're just putting ourselves on the throne because we put our hope in the one that we trust. Okay, let's get back to the story. Well, when we left off, Goliath was still issuing the challenge to King Saul, and all Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And David just shows up, by the way. David hasn't been here very long. David was actually bringing a care package to his brothers who were in the army. David's not even old enough to serve in the army yet, but he's bringing a care package to his brothers. And he sees what Goliath is doing, and he hears what Goliath is saying, and he notices that everybody else is dismayed and terrified, but David is not dismayed and terrified. When he sees what's taking place, when he hears what Saul is saying, David's not dismayed. David's not terrified. David is offended. It is offensive to David to hear what Goliath is saying. And it's offensive to David to see what Goliath is doing. And so David starts asking some questions. And he starts asking questions that nobody else is asking. And the questions that David asks give us a real glimpse into who he was putting his hope in. Verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this Disgrace from Israel. Removes this disgrace from Israel. Nobody else saw it that way. What everybody else saw was a nine and a half foot killing machine who was undefeated, untied, unscored upon. What everyone saw out, what everyone else saw was Saul who was conspicuously absent. Saul refusing to take action. Everyone else saw this as purely a military endeavor. But not David. David saw this as a disgrace upon Israel. 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Nobody's asking that question. Nobody else saw it that way. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Meaning, that man Goliath, he is outside of God's covenant. He is outside of God's protection. He has set himself up as an enemy of God. Now, all my life I have heard this story and the application of this story to be, well, God helped David defeat the giant and God will help you defeat your giant too. God helped David defeat his giant. God will help you defeat your giant. God helped David defeat his enemy. God will help you defeat your enemy. And there is certainly some merit to that. But I want you to be sure you realize David did not see Goliath as his enemy. David saw Goliath as God's enemy. And I think there's a difference. And David starts asking the question, who is this man who's setting himself up, not against the Philistines, or against the Israelites, not against us, who is this man who's setting himself up against the God of Israel? And why doesn't someone do something about it? And so David goes to King Saul. You're looking for someone to fight Goliath. I'll do it. And of course, Saul's original uh, reaction is exactly what you would expect it to be. You're kidding, right? You're a boy. You're a kid. You don't have any weapons. You don't have any armor. You're a shepherd, for crying out loud. This is a seasoned veteran warrior. He will kill you before your body hits the ground. And David says, wait a minute, okay. Rebuttal. Yes, I am a shepherd. But when a lion came and attacked the sheep, I didn't just save the rest of the sheep and you know, sacrifice one. I killed the lion. And when a bear came and attacked my sheep, I didn't just go back to dad and say, hey, sorry, lost one, cut our losses and run. I attacked the bear and killed the bear. And then David tells Saul this. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because, not because I'm a great soldier. Not because I have such a long military history behind me. But because, and why hasn't anyone else realized this? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me. I'm good, but I'm not that good. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. There is no confusion for David. He just looks at this in a way that nobody else has looked at it before. It's clear to David, Goliath's not just taunting us. He's taunting God. He is not challenging us. He is a disgrace to the people of Israel. David's assumption is, and it's going to carry him the whole way through his life, by the way. David's assumption is the man or the woman who puts their hope and their trust in God need never be afraid even when there's something to be afraid of. So Saul goes to, or David goes to Saul and says, pick me. Choose me. I'll fight Goliath. Now, later on, David would become king, second king of Israel. He'd reign for 40 years. 
And the great thing about David, one of the great things is he wasn't just a king, he was a writer. In fact, he was a phenomenal writer. He wrote beautifully. He wrote a great deal of the Psalms that we still have today. And what that means is we don't just get the narrative. We don't just get the story. We don't just get the time and the place, you know, this happened. We get an insight into what David was thinking. And we get an insight into what David was feeling. We see some of the emotions of David as he's writing about these things. And later on, he'd document uh, his perspective, and he would write these words. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. David, where's your trust? Is it in your talent? No. Is it in your personality? No. Is it in your influence? No. My trust is in the Lord my God. And that's the heart that God's looking for. And that's the heart that God is developing in this second king of Israel. And I think it's the same heart that God's still trying to develop in his people. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. And then just a couple of verses later, David's going to say something that kings don't usually say. And we see another piece of his heart. He says this in verse 5 of Psalm 25. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. David said, my hope is in you, God, all day long. Okay, back to the story. David goes down to face Goliath. David's very confident. Confident yet humble. Faces Goliath. By the way, Goliath is very confident too. In fact, Goliath's response to seeing David coming at him is very much like Saul was. Are, are, are you kidding me? A boy? You are sending a boy out to fight me? Am I a dog? Is this a joke? And I've got to think that the Israelites who are lined up on the valley, top of the ridge and walking down the valley are thinking the same thing Goliath is. Really? This is the best we had? This is it? We are, we are staking our future on this boy? That's who we're going to trust to get us through this? But the Israelites didn't know yet where David's hope was and where David's trust was. That his hope was in the Lord. So, Goliath repeats his threats. And David says this, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then, so let me give you a heads up on how this is going to go. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your big, ugly head. Now, the text doesn't say big, ugly, but i got to believe it was a big, ugly head. <laughs> Today, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know, not that there's a, a giant in the land, the whole world will know, not that there's some great army, the whole world will know not that there's some great warrior. The whole world will know not that there's some great king. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And he'll give all of you into his hands. And then David kills Goliath. 
and instantly becomes the most popular man in all of Israel. But David had simply done something that Saul wasn't able to do. David just simply realized something that Saul wasn't able to realize. And what David realized was there are things that were out of his control. That he can't control everything. You know, as, as individuals, we love to be in control. Kings love to be in control. I think we as Americans, we love to be in control. But the truth is, there are things that are out of our control. You know, they're, they're just life, there's too many variables in life. I can't control what happens in my life. Some, sometimes wonderful things happen. I'd like to take credit for it, but I really didn't have much to do with it. Sometimes tragic things happen. I'm looking for somebody to blame, but, you know, there's, you know, I can't control it. There's too many variables. David realized he can't control outcomes, but what he can control is who he puts his trust in. And he put his trust and his hope in someone he knew could control outcomes. He put his life in the hands of a God who was in control. And so what, what we learn to do is agree with David when he says, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Those are the words of David. I want you to repeat that with me out loud. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. One more time with a little bit more feeling. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. I haven't done this really in quite a while, but I made up some cards. Uh, some cards really uh, of that, uh, that slide. And the same, uh, the same graphic that's in your bulletin this morning too. When you leave the auditorium this morning, there's going to be some ushers at the doors with some of these to hand out. My challenge is, take one of these cards with you today. Put it somewhere where you'll see it. Put it on your dresser, maybe on the dashboard of your car, or, you know, on the mirror where you get ready in the morning. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Could you imagine starting your day every day this week with that conviction, before you leave the house, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. You go to work tomorrow. Maybe you're dreading work tomorrow. Maybe you're excited about work tomorrow. But before you leave, you say, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. You're at work and maybe this week you have just a phenomenal week. It's one of those magical days where everything goes right. You make the big sale or the presentation goes perfect and everyone's congratulating you. And, you know, you're the smartest person in the room. And you whisper under your breath what David must have whispered under his breath a thousand times. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Or maybe you have just the opposite kind of week. Maybe everything kind of goes wrong this week. And it looks like Goliath is going to win. And he's going to take you down and put you out. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. So take a card. Remind yourself. Remind yourself of what David was convinced of. David was Israel's greatest king. But he never confused himself 
with the real king of Israel. Next week, we are going to pick up the story right here. I hope you can come back. It's a fascinating story. I'm excited about this study. But for this morning, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. As a church family, we're going to sing a song of encouragement. Maybe there's something going on in your life this morning that you just need the prayers of people who love you. Maybe you haven't been putting your hope and your trust in God and you realize it's time to turn your life over to someone who is in control because we can't control outcomes. Only God can do that. Maybe something else is going on in your life you just want to share. If we can help you in any way, meet us down front. Let's stand and sing.